Welcome to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We believe that there is no message more life-changing and more relevant than the gospel. It is our earnest prayer that you will be enriched as a disciple and that you will hear the good news today. Go ahead and remain standing as we honor God's Word together from Psalm 23. If you know it or can read it from the screen, you read with me, please. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, as we've been going through the lessons in this teaching series that's rooted in uh, a book by Louis Giglio called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, the cover looks a lot like this. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me how blessed they've been by the lessons in this series. And I am so thankful for that. Um, I've gotten texts, I've gotten emails, I've gotten phone calls, I've had personal conversations. But along the way, there have been a few of these dear folks who have been really honest. And they've asked a question that I want to talk about today. They've said, Adam, this series, these lessons are really speaking into my life. I'm blessing me. I'm thankful for that. But um, I think I may be hearing it a little late because I've already let the enemy have a seat at my table and I'm not sure what to do about that because I don't think he just sat down I think I let him eat my food and I think I let him into my mind and into my life and I've let him do some really nasty work there And I agree that we should battle to protect our mind and our table, but I already lost that battle. Now what do I do? Maybe you can relate to that. You tried, but you failed, and the devil got a seat at your table and and has messed up your life. And, And you may wonder right now, is God done with you? I pray that you hear today, God is not done with you. And you may be asked, well, how can God use someone like me? I hope you hear me today. You are not finished. You are not rejected. And God's invitation always stands. The essence of the gospel is that God forgives sins through Jesus Christ and makes you brand new. Now, God does call us to a certain practice that is life-changing, and that practice is confession. We must admit to God that we have allowed the devil a seat at our table, that we've listened to his thoughts and lies, that we've even acted on those poisonous thoughts. 
The word of God in Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And so when we confess and we repent, God wipes away our sins, God forgives us and cleanses us, and God ejects the enemy from our table. But even still, we find with us, after that, there are still these outcomes of sin that remain. In particular, there are usually two outcomes of sin that stay in our life. Even after we've gone to God and God has given us mercy and He's ejected the the enemy from our table, we find that there's still two things that stick around as a result of our sin, and those are guilt and shame. Now, notice I called them guilt and shame. Those are two different things. They're related for sure. Sometimes we use them as synonyms. They're not. They're two different things. Guilt is the position of being accountable for our sins and our shortcomings. It's a legal term. Okay, it points us to remorse because we know that we are guilty. And in the framework of spiritual justice, we take responsible for our choices when those choices fall short of God's standard. I recognize my guilt. Shame is feeling defined by my sins or shortcomings. Okay, I, want, I, want, I want to say that again. Guilt is the position of being accountable for my sins and shortcomings. Shame is being defined by my sins and shortcomings. Shame acknowledges guilt, but then it intertwines my sin with my identity. That whereas guilt is a legal and spiritual state, shame is an emotional and mental state. And experiencing guilt will lead us to confess, I've done something wrong. I did something bad. Shame leads us to say, I am something wrong. I am bad. If you got it, say got it. Okay, even though shame and guilt are two separate things... There is one solution to both of them. You're at church, so you know the answer is Jesus. I'm not going to argue with that, but that wasn't the word I had in mind. (laughs) But, amen. The word I had in mind was grace. Because grace is the answer for both shame and guilt. You see, shame, if we talk about shame, shame is a powerfully destructive force that causes us to feel unworthy of God's love, acceptance, plans, and calling. And when we feel shame, we're prone to hide from God. Okay, I think of in the garden when Adam and Eve hid from God after their sin. Genesis 3.8, they hide from God. Not only does it make me hide from God, guess what else? My shame usually makes me hide from others, especially you all. And so I'm going to start building walls, and I'm going to run to the places where I feel much more comfortable. A lot of times that's work. So, so I can't make it because I, I can't come over to your house because I've got some work to do. And I can't, I can't be there at your event because I've got work to do. And I can't spend time with you because I have work to do. And I'm, I'm not going to make it to church because I have work to do. And, and it's just so hard to be there on Wednesday nights because i got work. And, and I start to hide from you because of shame. 
Because if I spend time with you, then you might really see what this mess looks like. So we disappear from church. We disappear from relationships. We disappear from meaningful conversations so that we don't have to deal with the feelings of rejection that we have or we think you'll have for us. We keep everyone at arm's length so that our past can't catch up with us. And what we don't realize when we do that is actually we've let shame imprison us in our past. We're so worried that you're going to remind me of my past that I'm not going to talk to you and I stay right in it. Shame has me so scared that you'll reject me that I'm doing the rejecting myself. And so it locks me up right there in my past. But grace frees us from shame. When Adam and Eve were in the garden in Genesis 2.25, it has this amazing statement. It says after all of this, it says they were made and they were in the garden. It says that they were both naked and they felt no shame. That one of the hallmarks of the way God made us was free from shame. Even at our most vulnerable and most exposed, we are free from shame. And then sin enters the picture and they hide from God, Genesis 3.8. Okay, it says, that, it says that they heard God walking in the garden and then they hid from him because they knew that they did not have clothes on. And then in Genesis 3.15... We find out something else. God, after talking with them, and he says, I know that you've sinned. I know that things have gone wrong. I know that you're ashamed. But I'm going to put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent that's deceived them, and the woman between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you'll strike his heel. You see, even before there was sin, God had already made a rescue plan to overcome shame. God is good, amen? He says, I'm I'm going to deliver you from this. Grace frees us from shame. And guilt? The grace of God through the work of Jesus on the cross cancels, cancels your spiritual guilt and sets you free. Grace positions you rightly before God. There is a penalty to be paid for sin. But Jesus has already paid it and set you free. Amen? Amen. Repentance is not a negative thing. You see, the reason we think repentance is a negative thing is because we think that shame is right. But repentance is not a negative thing. Turning away from sin and turning to God is celebrated. It is not an access, it is not, a, it is not an action that deserves shame, it's a celebration. The act of confessing and admitting guilt opens a doorway from God called grace that God can walk through and into my life and transform me and reclaim me. And that is good news. God comes through that door doing the thing you can never do for yourself. And so 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, God has sent Christ to forgive our sins. To everyone who repents, God claims forgiveness. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Through Christ, you are made innocent and righteous. Through Christ, you are made brand new. There we got one. That'll work. 
You see, the enemy tries to book us tickets on a guilt trip. He remembers everything and he brings up our past all the time. He works hard to convince us that hiding sin is the only way to keep it safe. But it never works. You see, our guilt is never removed when we hide. It's only when we step into the light that the grace of Christ removes our guilt. So grace frees us from shame. Grace frees us from guilt. But grace does more than that. Grace not only cancels guilt and shame, grace redefines us. The biggest change in our identity is moving from failure to family. Okay, we move from, say it with me, failure to family. Very good. In 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a book entitled The Scarlet Letter. Spoilers. I don't know if I need to give you spoilers on a book written in 1850. <clears throat> if you haven't gotten to it, that's, that's not my fault at this point. I think there's a statute of limitations on spoilers. And I think 1850 probably exceeds that. But in the story, a young woman named Hester Prynne has a baby through an affair. Hester is jailed for adultery and made to feel like a failure. When the baby is three months old, Hester is released from jail. Her initial debt to society is paid. Yet in order to shame her more permanently, the townspeople make Hester stand on a scaffold in the town square for three hours, wearing a cloth with a red letter A stitched into it in front of her, on the front of her dress. And that legacy of public shaming will be her ongoing punishment. For years afterwards, Hester is treated as an outcast because she's being defined by what she's done. I think that many of you walk around now with your own scarlet letters. Defined by your past sin. You look down at the letter and you say, yep, that's me. Or or maybe someone else's sin got into your life and messed with you, and now you look in the mirror and you say, I'm damaged goods. I'm ruined. And you're wearing other people's failures as your own. But I need you to hear this. God changes your identity. Grace redefines us. You see, the enemy wants to identify you by your scars. Jesus wants to identify you by his scars. 
The enemy wants to define you by your scars. Jesus wants to define you by his scars. The grace of Jesus changes our identity. So John writes in his first epistle, chapter 3 and verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You are a son or daughter of God. A child of the King. You are written into God's will and you are an heir of everything God has. You are a beneficiary of God's lavish love which has changed you from a failure into family. You see, grace not only cancels guilt and shame, it redefines us. I want you to consider as a case study the life of the Apostle Peter. Peter was among the first to be called a fisher of men. He was called to follow Jesus. And through his faith, God told him that he would be part of the bedrock of the early church. Peter was there. He followed Jesus all three years of his ministry. Peter was there on the night of the Last Supper. Where Jesus threw a dinner for his 12 closest followers. And while at the dinner it's revealed that someone will betray Jesus. And the disciples are slack-jawed, flabbergasted. They couldn't believe it. How would anyone do that? Especially Peter couldn't believe it. And he, he, incensed he speaks up. And he speaks out. And he loudly decries whoever would do such a thing. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny that you know me three times. Never. The Last Supper concludes and they head to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed in earnest. And and Judas comes leading in the Roman soldiers and in the dim light of the garden betrays Jesus with the kiss of a supposed friend. Jesus is arrested And for the rest of the night, Jesus is shuttled back and forth between various government and religious entities in Jerusalem. And he's mocked and scorned and questioned and spit on and beaten. We don't know where the rest of the disciples were at this time. They scattered. But we do know that Peter followed along at a distance. That that his good intentions at least carried him that far. But then came crunch time. Far into that unholy night, Jesus was being questioned at the home of the high priest, Caiaphas. And it was a cold night, and Peter stood outside warming himself at a fire in the courtyard. And a number of folks were standing around, and a young woman begins to question Peter, recognizing him as one of Jesus' followers. And Peter says, no, 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 you have the wrong guy, that's not me. Someone else makes the same recognition, but again, Peter denies it. And about an hour later, another person recognizes his Galilean accent and asks if he's a friend of Jesus. This was his moment, full pressure on. And he was afraid. He was likely tired, exhausted, hungry, scared. Isn't that when the devil usually steps in and the enemy tries to make a mess of things? You have a Galilean accent. You know him, right? 
And for a third time, Peter says, I don't know him. And with the third denial, the rooster crowed. And Peter realizes what he's done. He had sounded so strong at the Last Supper, but there in the courtyard he had crumbled. Luke's gospel says that he, he was, felt deep remorse and anguish and he wept bitterly. But the story continued. And Jesus went to the cross. Now, at, side note. Can we just take a moment to be thankful for all the times when in spite of our failure, God continues the story? That, that, that Peter failed, but Jesus didn't. That, that even though Peter had fallen down, Peter had crumbled, Jesus didn't. Jesus went to the cross. The story continues to move forward. Peter bailed on the mission, but Jesus didn't. The death and burial of Jesus takes place. And early on Sunday morning, two women come to the tomb and they find it empty. They hurry back and describe the scene to the rest of the disciples. And Peter takes off running to the tomb immediately. And he tries to make sense of what he's seeing with the empty place, the, the burial clothes laying there. Eventually, Jesus does appear to them. John chapter 21 tells us that story. In Galilee, Peter and six of the disciples are fishing on the lake. Think about that. It says in John 21, they'd been there all night, hadn't caught anything. Maybe, maybe Peter needed time to think, and, and, and maybe he just went back to what he knew. He was a fisherman before. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he just needed some space, and his best place to think was on the water. I have a friend who's best, he's, he's, he was born a farmer, and even though he went to medical school and he's become a surgeon, his best place to think is right back in the dirt. And so when he's, when he's feeling it, when he's really stressed, he goes back to the dirt and he gets his hands dirty. And he says, I do my best thinking when I'm, when I'm just working in the dirt. Maybe, maybe that's what's happened here where Peter has gone back. But I think it's interesting that he's returned to his previous life, his life before Christ. He went back to fishing for fish. Maybe he thought he had a large scarlet three on his chest, signifying him as a three-time betrayer when it mattered most. That he would look at it and be assured that it was impossible for a three-time betrayer like him to have any place in the purposes of Jesus anymore. And so he went back to the old commission. And just as day was breaking, Jesus is standing on the shore and he's calling out to them. And he asks them, have you caught any fish? I think he knows the answer. And then I love it. He says, why don't you try throwing the net on the other side? Now, remember, they're fishermen. My guess is that they've thrown the net on the other side. 
at some point that night. They were out there all night and hadn't caught any. They've thrown the net on the front of the boat, the back of the boat, the left side, the right side. They've been everywhere they can be on that boat to try and catch fish. So what's different now when Jesus says throw it on the other side? The difference is that Jesus is the one saying it. And when the Lord commissions you for something, he does it with a purpose. And there's his power behind it. And he says, throw the net on the other side. When they do, all of a sudden, they're trying to heave this net in. Because it's overloaded with fish. He's asking them, when he says, have you tried the other side? Do you see what's happening? They've gone back to fish for fish. Jesus has been here in this place before and he told them to do the same thing when he called them the first time. And said, follow me, I'm going to make you fish for men. You're going to fish for other people now. He gave them the call of discipleship. Now here they are fishing for fish again. And he says, follow me even now. Even after I know what you've done and you know what you've done. Peter, I see that you're wearing that big number three. And you can go ahead and lose that because I am still calling you here and now to follow me. Peter and the other disciples do it. The nets are full to bursting. They're about 100 yards from shore. Peter dives in to see if it's really Jesus. He wants to get there even faster. The others are dragging the massive catch in. And when they get to the shore, they see a charcoal fire. They see fresh bread. They see Jesus inviting them to eat with him at the table that he's prepared for them. In spite of everything, Jesus had not shown up to guilt trip them. Jesus had not shown up to shame them. Jesus had come to invite them to his table again. Even Peter. And the same is true for you and I as well. What do you think he'll say when we come and join him for breakfast? Do you think you'll hear the voice of your accuser? Now, we shouldn't forget that sin is sin. Remember, there's that whole confession thing I talked about. We acknowledge that sin is sin. It should be identified as such. But what we tend to do, like I said, is we heap on so much guilt and so much shame in addition to that. That we tell ourselves that we're useless and worthless and done for and finished. And Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Kenny, I want you to go ahead and bring your team up. I would like our prayer team to come up. And I want to invite the McKendrick family to go ahead and start getting ready. Because I understand that Liam is going to make a decision to be baptized into Christ today. And I want to remind, amen. And I think our security team is headed down to get our kids so that they can come up and watch as well. Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Right? You say, Adam, he, you said he didn't put him on a guilt trip, but he kind of shows up and is like, well, do you even love me? I think we read that tone into it because of that guilt speaking to us. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And even though Peter is conflicted and struggling with what he's done, he says, yes. And Jesus says what to him? Feed my sheep. Peter, don't you understand? You're not finished. Right there in that moment. 
Jesus is inviting him back to his new commission. Jesus is inviting him back to the place of his table where he says, I have a purpose for you. I'm going to use you. You have a ministry, Peter. You see, Jesus doesn't focus on our failures. He focuses on our restoration. Peter had failed, but he was not a failure. And in the same way, we are told that sin is what we did and what has been done to us, but it is not who we are. Because we are God's family. We are the children of the Almighty King. We are heirs of the King of the universe. And He looks into our eyes and He asks, do you love me? And if our story is, yes, I love you, then He precedes the restoration and He says, my grace covers your guilt. My grace cancels your shame. You will not be defined by those things. Rather, you're going to be defined by me. Since you love me, let's not go backwards. Let's go forwards together. Psalm 34, 5 puts it this way. It says, those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Do you think of yourself as radiant? Radiant in the grace of God, reflecting His love and His glory. That's you. You see, this new identity forms when you agree with Jesus, when you repent and confess, when you're baptized into Him and He tells you, you are forgiven, you are mine. And if He says you can go forward, you can go forward because God's invitation always stands. Amen. We sincerely thank you for listening and pray that you were blessed today. To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, to support our ministry, or to contact us with any prayer needs you may have, head over to www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.